If I haven't met you yet, my name is Jonathan, and uh, I am one of the pastors here at North Central. And um, we're super glad that you're with us this morning, either here uh, in person or whether you're online. Uh, thanks so much. Thanks so much for joining us. Tons of other things to do with your Sunday morning, right? We are in, uh, we're in week three of a series called Enjoying God, Living Satisfied and Gratified. And uh, one of the things I realized listening to Pastor Yon a couple weeks ago and um, Pastor Dan last week, and then doing some of my own prep and study this week, is that enjoying God, this thing that we're going to talk about, enjoying God is one of the most critical things that we can do as Christians um, because I believe that it has massive potential. It has massive potential to change every single area of our life if we let it. And I, and I really mean that. It can change um, our theology, which is what we believe about God. Uh, it can change our recreation. It can change our relationships, uh, even our vision of the future as we start to consider things like heaven, right? We start to consider things like the new earth. Why? Because we believe that enjoying God will one day be our primary purpose fully realized. Enjoying God will one day be our primary purpose fully realized. Not making money, not setting ourselves up for retirement, not even making disciples. Enjoying God will one day be our primary purpose fully realized. Now, that can be a little bit troubling. You might be thinking, like, I know how to enjoy stuff. I know how to enjoy stuff. I know how to enjoy uh, working with my hands, maybe, or I know how to enjoy teaching, or enjoy vacation, or my motorcycle, or music, or pizza, right? Who doesn't love a good pizza? Especially when the crust is just right. You guys know what I'm talking about? You ever notice that? Nice and, nice and thin, right? With like a beautiful crunch on the bottom and, and maybe like some gorgeous red sauce over the top and like the big slabs of fresh mozzarella, right? And, 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 and some fresh basil and then you bake that thing in like a 900 degree oven, right? A wood-fired oven and it blackens the edges. You guys know what I'm talking about? blackens the edges and you get this like bubbly crusty whoo mamma mia right <laughs> i'm trying to let uh i'm trying to let megan see if megan will let me build a uh, a wood-fired pizza oven in my backyard so um here we go hey hey if anybody wants to fund that just <laughs> see me after <laughs> See me after church. I'll make you a pizza every night. I will make you a pizza every night. But we get that, right? We understand that. We know how to enjoy things like pizza. Now, if I start talking about enjoying God, it's a bit of a different story, right? We kind of just like glaze over. We don't really have any context for it. Nothing to really connect him to. So we're kind of just lost on this. We're kind of just lost on this topic of enjoying God. So what I want to submit to you today is that it doesn't have to be like that. I'm suggesting that it's possible to enjoy God right now, today, 
in a way that we've never thought that we could. But we need a major shift in our perspective to do it. Now, here's where I think we can get into some trouble, and and I'm very conscious of this because I'm guilty of it. This is so important to understand. Check this out. So, So we as humans tend to enjoy the gift more than we enjoy the giver of the gift. You ever notice that? That's so, that's so hard for us. We do that so naturally and, and so quickly. But here's what I want you to know. The enjoyment of God is the enjoyment of a person. It's not the enjoyment of a thing. You see this, the, the distinction there. Pastor Yon talked about this beautifully a, a couple weeks ago. We, we start to kind of chase things around and stuff it around, right, in an attempt to fill this emptiness that we have inside that we believe can only be filled by the person, the person of God. And so we end up making good things ultimate things. We talked about that. Stuff that God has made and done and blessed us with, we're inclined to take those gifts and kind of elevate them above the giver of the gift. That's called idolatry. In other words, if our enjoyment terminates, if our enjoyment terminates and ends on the good things that he's made, we are idolaters. Okay, so we've got to guard against that part of our nature, and we're going to talk about how to do that. Secondly, when we start talking about enjoying God, especially through the things that he's made, like we're going to today, we're in danger of another thing. It's called hedonism. Okay, what the heck is that? Hedonism is the pursuit of pleasure above all else. And that pleasure is the highest good. It's the proper aim of the human life. Okay, so nothing's more important than pleasure. If it makes you feel good, it can't be bad, right? Uh, so, so pursue that thing with all your heart. It's the only thing that'll, that'll make you happy. It's the only way you're going to be happy. Okay, obviously a flawed philosophy. I don't think anything will make you self-serving faster than hedonism. And, and, and it's not just the bad stuff. Right? We tend to think of stuff like drug and alcohol addictions um, when we think about a, an out-of-balance pursuit of pleasure. But that's not always the case. Again, we can subvert good things like sex and food and relaxation. And if it brings us pleasure, our sin nature, this thing that we've got inside of us says, go get it, right? Go get that thing. Don't let anything stand in your way and what can happen, of course, is our lives can just spin apart. Romans one twenty five says this. says, but they traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshipped and served the things God created instead of the Creator Himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. That makes sense? They worshipped the created things instead of the Creator Himself. All right, so idolatry, hedonism, that's what can happen when we elevate the gift above the giver. I hope that makes sense. So, how do we do it? How do we do it? How can we find enjoyment in God without falling into some of those traps? We're going to talk about three signposts that I think will help this morning. These are three things that are going to point us to who He is, what He's like, and hopefully help us find some enjoyment in Him. Three things Enjoying God through creation, number one. Enjoying God through beauty, number two. And enjoying God through work and rest. First one is enjoying God through creation. So let's go to the Bible to check this out. 
Just as a, a sidebar, you'll notice that we use the Bible quite a bit. In order to really enjoy someone or something, you have to know it, right? That only makes sense. And, and, and I just want to say this morning that the best way to know God is in his word. That's the best way to know God. I promise you that if you want to know God, the Bible is the primary way to do it. It's beautiful. It's beautiful in its design and in its content and ultimately who it reveals. All right, so what's it say? We're going to look at Romans 1.20. It says, They know the truth about God because he's made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. So the question is, how can we enjoy God without knowing him? Remember, he's a person. So if I'm intending to enjoy someone, it only makes sense that I've got to know them first. And so Paul's kind of giving us a clue here that this is a way we can know and enjoy God. He says it's through creation that we can see his eternal power and his divine nature. So imagine with me an infinitely powerful God who intends to reveal himself through creation, through what he's made. So if that's true, then it's no wonder that the universe is immense, right? That just makes sense. It's clear that God is showing us. It's clear that he means for us to be stunned by his workmanship, by what he's made. But not only for its own sake, right? He wants us to look at creation and say, oh my. Like, oh my goodness, if, 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 if what he's made is so full of wisdom and it's so full of power and grandeur and, and majesty and beauty, what must he be like? It's a signpost, right? Creation is a signpost. It's pointing us to him. It's very much there for us to enjoy. There was a guy um, in history and his name was Louis Cyr. You can, you can look this fella up. His last name is spelled C-Y-R. He was this famous French-Canadian strongman. He's like the original strongman. This was back in like the early 1900s. And people still think that he's like the strongest man to ever live. Apologies to Pastor Dan on that one. But, but Louis Cyr was just like this absolute ox of a man. And here's what his resume of his great feats and his accomplishments include. Ready for this. Lifting a 500-pound weight with one finger. Okay. <laughs> Lifting a platform on his back with 18 men on it, totaling 4,300 pounds. This last one's my favorite one. Once he resisted the pull of four horses, draft horses, right? He's holding two in each hand with a rope. And the handlers are like cracking the whip, trying to get the horses to pull. And this man is holding four horses. So Louis Sear is an incredible human being. An incredible human being with an incredible list of accomplishments and feats. Now, you want to know what's on God's resume of accomplishments? Making Louis Sear. <laughs> right? Designing and crafting the universe. 
Okay, setting it into being with His Word. Only His Word. Psalm 33 tells us this. The Lord merely spoke and the heavens were created. He breathed the Word and all the stars were born. He assigned the sea its boundaries and locked the oceans in vast reservoirs. Let the whole world fear the Lord and everyone stand in awe of Him. For when He spoke, the world began and it appeared at His command. You ever notice that one of the best ways to enjoy God is to go outside at night and and just look up? I've always been so fascinated by the cosmos, and we've done our best to try to instill that sense of wonder in our kids. Well, we've been at our friend's home out on Kiyuka Lake, and um, man, when that night sky rolls in out there, it's, it's, it's almost impossible to describe. And here's a picture that I took last fall on my phone of the Milky Way, right? We're just sitting out on a dock. Jimmy, you were there, I think, when we, when we took this, right? We're just sitting out on the dock, hanging out. I pull my phone out and take that of the Milky Way. Now, as beautiful as that is, when we sit out on that dock and we stare up at that thing and we wonder what that's all about. What do you, what do you think it is that we're, we're talking about, right? My conversations with my kids are about God. We, we, we talk about what a ridiculous notion it is that we're some happy accident in light of this, right? And how incredibly complex this thing that could come from nothing is. How, how ridiculous is that? Right? Like, um, uh, the, the, that would, if this came from nothing, right, that would defy the laws of science itself, right? You can't have something from nothing. I mean, come on, scientists, right? You, you know this. You know that. That's the basic law of science. And when we talk about a God who created us with purpose and with love and with care and that we're made in his image, we're enjoying God. We're enjoying God. How are we doing it? Through creation. The psalmist says it so explicitly. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Here's what that means. It means the skies are saying something. They're saying something, and we should listen. You could fit a million earths inside the sun. In a larger star named Betelgeuse, you could fit a billion Of our sons, or 260 trillion Earths would go into Betelgeuse. In a a larger star star called VY Canis Majoris, it would take 9.3 billion suns to fill that sucker up. Are we feeling small yet? Astronomers tell us there could be a trillion galaxies in existence, each one with hundreds of billions of stars. Why? Why in the world would God make something so massive and so wild? Of course, he could have just made the earth, right? He could have just made the moon and maybe a few stars. But no, he didn't. He didn't do that. He made this terrifying, endless beautiful, unexplored, unexplorable abyss 
Why did he do that? Because he must have wanted to tell us something about himself. He's the real, terrifying, endless, beautiful, unexplored, unexplorable one. We exist to celebrate and admire and enjoy something greater than ourselves. Someone stronger than ourselves. It's why we love to praise athletes and musicians and actors, right? And then we get disappointed when we find out how human they are. <clears throat> and that's because we're made by a God and for a God who is larger than life. And here's the thing. It takes a shift in perspective. That's what it takes. If we stare up at the night sky or at the intricacies of a molecule through a microscope, or even the changing colors this fall, and we don't let it lift our eyes to the maker, let it serve as this kind of signpost pointing us to the maker, we're missing out on enjoying God. Every leaf is different. Every snowflake is different. Every fingerprint is different. Why? It, it almost makes no sense at all. It's not a stretch to say that the vast majority of beauty in the universe goes unnoticed, right, by us. It goes unnoticed, unappreciated except by God. He's doing it for his own pleasure. He's doing it for his own glory, his own enjoyment. But he's inviting us in to participate in that, to participate in that enjoyment. So that's the first one, enjoying God through creation. The second one, enjoying God through beauty. All right, we're going to start this one with some trivia, okay? Put your trivia hats on. This one's a little bit of a toughie, so if you don't get it, don't be too upset. But if you do get it, I'll make you a pizza. <laughs> no using Google, okay? <laughs> All right, here's the question. Who was the first person recorded in Scripture that God fills with his spirit? Does anyone know? You can either tell me his name or what he did for a living, what his profession was. First person, anyone? No. I told you it's a tough one. No pizzas. No pizzas for anyone. Oh, all right. No, it wasn't Abraham. No, it's no one obvious. Okay, so his name was Bezalel. His name was Bezalel. No one. <laughs> but we've got we've to check this out. This is such a cool story, you guys. Look at this. This is in Exodus, Exodus 31. This is the first account of God filling someone with his spirit. I want you to take note of what this person does for a living, who he is. God says, look, I have specifically chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, grandson of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. I've filled him with the spirit of God. There it is. Giving him great wisdom, ability, and expertise in all kinds of crafts. He's a master craftsman. He's an expert in working with gold and silver and bronze. He's skilled in engraving and mounting gemstones and in carving wood. He's a master at every craft. And I've personally appointed a holy son of someone of the tribe of Dan to be his assistant. Moreover, I've given special skill to all the gifted craftsmen so they can make all the things I've commanded you to make. 
the tabernacle. Okay, God is fashioning the tabernacle. This is where his presence is going to live among his people. The, the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark's cover, the place of atonement, all the furnishings in the tabernacle, the table and all its utensils, the pure gold lampstand with all its accessories, the incense altar, the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, the wash basin with its stand, the beautifully stitched garments, not just the stitched garments, the, sacram- the sacred garments for Aaron the priest and the garments for his sons to wear as they minister to the priest, the anointing oil, the fragrant incense for the holy place, the craftsmen must make everything that I have commanded you. All right, so we're talking about the tabernacle here. Most of us are kind of familiar with what that is. That's the place where God, his presence was going to reside so he could be with his people, Israel. But is he building it himself? No, he's gifting artists. And he's gifting craftsmen to build it for him. And what do we notice about it? Well, what are, what are some of the descriptor words that God uses here? First, he says it's through his spirit, of course. He's giving expertise to do it. Okay, so we need a master craftsman here, a master artist. And he starts to describe the materials. Gold, silver, bronze, gemstones, carved wood, fragrant incense, beautifully stitched garments. Not just stitched garments. Beautifully. So what do we notice about all these things? What do they all have in common? They're things of great beauty, right? We're getting another clue about God here. We're getting another clue about God and how to enjoy him. He's a God of beauty. He's a God who values beauty. And he values beautiful things just like we do. Why? Because we're made in his image. But we know the trap we know the trap, don't we? We sure do. Somehow, because of our broken, sinful nature, uh, we view things of beauty, these gifts that God has given us, in a higher place than the giver of the gift, which is what we do. It's what we, kind of what we talked about earlier. Our hearts are prone towards this idolatry. In Israel's case, it wasn't actually very long before they'd made an idol out of gold, right? And they started worshiping it instead of God. But there's another side to that too, um, and, and I think we can go too far in the other direction as well. And here's what I mean by that. Have you ever noticed that the church has a bit of a strained relationship with the arts? It's just weird. It's just weird. Like, like we really don't know what to do with them, especially when art raises more questions than it provides answers. Well, believe it or not, that's actually an after effect of the Protestant Reformation. It was during the Reformation when the church started to view art as only idolatry. So, things like architecture and sculpting and painting and even music started to come under fire as these mediums that distracted from the glory of God, not that pointed to the glory of God. Clearly, they had never heard any Bach. So because of that tendency towards idolatry, we thought it would kind of be a good idea to strip our homes and our buildings and our churches and even our bodies of anything beautiful. That's called asceticism. And it's a sad side effect. And, and, and it's left artists with kind of nothing to do. And it kind of sort of completely devalued them. 
So these are folks that God says he's given his spirit to, to make beautiful things, and these folks are mostly kind of disregarded, right? So what did the artists do? Well, they just moved on. They moved on from the church, right? They moved on. They went to the playhouses and the concert halls and the museums and the universities. What a shame. What a shame that is. N.T. Wright says this. He says, in my experience... The Christian painter or poet or sculptor or dancer is regularly regarded as something of a curiosity, to be tolerated, humored even, maybe even allowed to put on a show once in a while. But the idea that they are or could be anything more than that, that they have a vocation to reimagine and re-express the beauty of God, to lift our sights and change our vision of, our vision of reality is often not even considered. And then we kind (laughs) of make things a little worse by commercializing music and commercializing movies and art and with this formula that we come up with that guarantees sales and it guarantees profit. And that's how we get bad art. That's how we get bad art, isn't it? We tell our artists, don't reimagine and re-express the beauty of God, but just follow the formula. It'll sell. So one of the questions we have to ask ourselves is, can this weird relationship we've had with the arts be redeemed? Is it possible that we can shift away from art that says, look at me, to art that says, look at God? The reason that those paintings out there in the foyer have a prominent place out there, and they're well lit, and they're very important to us, is because we believe that they can lift our eyes. It might take a minute, right? But if you look closely behind what is some apparent chaos, you'll find gold. You'll find beauty. You might even find a God who's present no matter how chaotic our circumstances become. God reveals himself through beauty. Tells us something of himself. And we can enjoy him through it. I so believe that. Here's our third one, enjoying God through work and rest. Enjoying God through work and rest. Check this out out of Ecclesiastes. It says, so I decided there's nothing better than to enjoy food and drink and to find satisfaction in work. Then I realized that these pleasures are from the hand of God. For who can eat or enjoy anything apart from him? God gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy to those who please him. Now, there's a lot packed into those few verses. At first, we're kind of getting something from the author that sounds a bit like hedonism, right, that we talked about earlier. It's when you uh, place pleasure and seeking pleasure as the highest priority. He says he's decided uh, nothing is better than enjoyment of food and drink and satisfaction and work. But then he says, wait a minute, wait a minute. I then realized that those things are pleasures from the hand of God. Who can eat or enjoy anything apart from him? That's exactly, exactly the kind of perspective change that we've been talking about. Food, drink, work, all of that is good, but it's from God who brings ultimate satisfaction. And those things are just gifts from him, right? Now that brings up an important question. Is work 
a gift from God. <laughs> and just as importantly, can I enjoy him in my work? This is a biggie. Well, let's look at the beginning of work real quick here. Back in Genesis, God doesn't create man and then put him in charge of Eden and give him nothing to do. Right? That was never the plan. Actually, Genesis 2.15 says, the Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it to work it and take care of it. So, right from the start here, there's this element of kind of co-laboring with God, and it's a holy endeavor. It's ordained by God, and I can guarantee you that Adam wasn't worried about when the workday was going to be over, or when he'd finally get kind of promoted to something else, or, or how much he'd be paid. <clears throat> this was a joy-filled life of working as a steward of creation. In the paradise that, that Jesus actually talked about on the cross, remember that? He said, today you'll be with me in paradise. That's not a wild landscape he's talking about. That's not what that word means actually in the Greek. It's actually a place of order and a place of cultivation that man tended to. So that's the beginning of work. How about the end of work? Some of us think about retirement. Some of us think about heaven. Well, I, I want to take it a, a step further, and um, God gives us this beautiful picture of a place he calls the new earth. And one day, God, this, <laughs> one day God will bring heaven with him. He'll reunite heaven and earth. We'll live forever and ever and ever with God, not in heaven, but on a new, restored earth. What's more, Jesus says that he'll come and he'll wipe away all of our tears there, there will be no more sadness or sickness or sorrow. That's our future. That's our future as Christians. Remember, enjoying God will one day be our primary purpose, fully realized. It sounds incredible, right? Definitely a place with no work. Nope. <laughs> Isaiah 65 says, In those days, people will live in the houses they build and eat the fruit of their own vineyard. So what we're seeing is a continuation from Genesis. God doesn't renew the heavens and earth and then give us nothing to do. He invites us into his work. He's not zapping things into existence while he's got creative men and women like you and I made in his image sitting around doing nothing. So if there's joy-filled work at the beginning as we see in Genesis, there's joy-filled work for all of eternity as we see in Isaiah and in Revelation why in the world am I not enjoying God at my job right now? <clears throat> I want to suggest a couple possible reasons. The first one is that we endure work. The second one is that we adore work. One of the reasons it's so difficult to enjoy God through work is that sometimes we're not sure it matters. So we just endure it. Right? That's really the crux of the issue. We want our work to matter. That's so understandable. And that really speaks to what we feel is our purpose in life. And our culture just affirms that. It tells us that so much of our identity is wrapped up in what we do. Right? And man, it just feels like when it's nothing but a grind, right? We're just left with kind of enduring it to the end of, the, of, uh, of every day. But I want you to listen to what um, pastor and author Scott Sauls says here. He says, any kind of work that leaves people, places, or things in better shape than before 
any kind of work that helps the city of man become more like the city of God where truth, beauty, and goodness, order, and justice reign is work that should be celebrated as good. He then goes on to make the point that when our work leaves people and places and things in better shape than when we found them, we image God. We image God. Here's some examples of that. Mothers image the nurture of God. Artists and entrepreneurs, the creativity of God. Government leaders and business executives, the rule of God. Healthcare professionals and counselors, the healing hand of God. Educators, the wisdom and knowledge of God. Nonprofit workers, the mercy of God. Fashion inventors and stylists, the beauty of God. Marketers and advertisers, the evangelistic energy of God. Authors and storytellers and filmmakers, the drama of God. Is all of that good? Of course it is. What makes our work good and meaningful is that it's done in a way that reflects how God works. The second problem we have with work is that we adore it. We adore it. I mean, that sounds a little bit ridiculous. Like, who adores work? But listen, when work is central to your sense of self, it's where you go to look for meaning and purpose. It's your true God. It's your true God. It becomes a thing that we worship. Not just worshiping work, but worshiping what work gives us. Right? Meaning and status and wealth. Maybe a sense of purpose. And here's a few signs that, um, that that might be true in our lives. First one, you don't know who you are apart from your work. Second one, you can't walk away. Third one, the happenings at work have great power over your emotional well-being. Fourth one, you're jealous of others in your line of work who seem beyond you. Or maybe you comfort yourself by looking down on those who aren't as far along as you. So you've kind of got the picture, right? We're supposed to worship and enjoy God through our work, not worship our work. So how do we do it? How can we get work right? How can we enjoy God through our work? The first thing that I would say is that we need to learn how to enjoy God through rest. And I'm not talking necessarily about physical rest. That's incredibly important, of course. Please do that. But there's another kind of rest that's available to us. Check this out. Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I'm humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. Guys, I think that this is the master key for enjoying God. I really do. When we read the Genesis account of creation, what do we find God doing when he finishes? He rests. <clears throat> he rests. Why? Because he was tired? Because he needed a break? No, he rested because he was satisfied. He called it good. And then he set out enjoying it. All right, here's what's so incredible about Jesus. His work gives us rest. His work gives us rest. That's the good news. 
No other religion in the world lays claim to this. It's totally unique to Christianity. No more striving. No more worrying and wondering if we're okay with God. No more carrying the burden of perfection in order to please God. We've been rescued from that. We've been redeemed from that. It's the best news in the world. Check out what Romans 8 says. It says the law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirements of the law would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. I don't know if he caught verse 4 there. He says, he did this so the requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us. For us. It's a gift. It's an incredible gift. Jesus suffers and dies on our behalf. And then what does he do? He says, come. Come and rest, right? Rest in the things that I've done, the things that I've accomplished. Only Jesus can do that. Right? He gives us the freedom of, of, of knowing that our work doesn't define us. His work defines us. Guys, the best way I know how to enjoy God, to rest in God, is to rest in Jesus' work on your behalf. That's how to do it. Rest in Christ's work on your behalf. It's a complete work. It's a finished work. Be intentional about seeing him and what he's made. Open your eyes to the incredible beauty and the glory of the world around us. Not only that, but the creativity that he's gifted people with, right? To make beautiful things. It's true that one day enjoying God will be our primary purpose, fully realized. What a day that'll be. But in the meantime, I believe we can know him so much more fully so much more fully by enjoying him right now. Enjoying him right now in the everyday stuff of life. Let's pray together. God, we're thankful for your word this morning. We're thankful for what it shows us and teaches us about you. We're thankful for what you have done to reveal yourself to us through creation through beauty, the incredible things that you've made, the things that you've gifted us to make, God, they tell us something about you. Help us see it. Help us not to pass those things by, those moments where you're showing us something about your character, something about your glory, something about your beauty. Help us, God, not to miss it. By your Holy Spirit, we know that you can do that and that is the primary way that you do that, how you can show us the beauty and the glory of Christ through your spirit. We're so thankful for that. God, would you cause us this morning to find our rest in you? No more striving, no more earning, no more reaching to make ourselves right with you. We rest in that work of Christ, that finished and beautiful and complete work this morning. Man, that changes everything. It changes our work. 
changes our relationships, changes the way that we can rest. And God, we return praise to you this morning. We're grateful to be gathered. We're grateful to be able to sing together with you how that lifts our eyes as well to you, your beauty, your majesty. And God, we're just grateful. We're grateful that you've included us in your plans and your purposes and that you call us your children. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen.